Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Good morning. My name is Janice. It's my privilege to be standing here and just bringing this last word of First Peter to you. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm excited because, I mean, some of the things, uh, I just felt like God was just uh, dropping in my heart because, you know, I, I was just asking God, you know, what's your burden for the word today? And uh, yeah, and um, during worship, uh, he just began to show me a couple of things. And uh, I know that this is going to be a word that's, uh, you know, going to speak to right where many of you are at and those of you who are here as well. And so uh, I bring this excitement from God and uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know how many of you have uh, the similar experience. My mom or my dad would tell me stories of, you know, when they were kids uh, and during World War II, right? Uh, you know, how uh, my mom would tell me how their family uh, would kind of like eat like plain white rice with um, soy sauce. Uh, sometimes if nothing else to go with it. I don't know if you, how many of you have stories like that. Xiang Dang Yin, right? Like back then, uh, it's always these kind of stories. And my dad would tell me how uh, he remembers you know, having to scrounge around for food, potatoes, uh, and, and just you know a whole bunch of things. It's just interesting to hear uh, stories of their childhood uh, and just how um, things were different, so different from where I was when I was growing up, even back then. Uh, now, much more grown up, of course, it's a lot different as well. But I, I remember those stories like, uh, you know, the, the, as precious memories. Now, one memory that's uh, a, a bit of a mixed feeling was this. And uh, I think a couple of you have heard this story before. So when I, I was in my teenage years, uh, I was cleaning up the study room in my house with my dad. And, um, you know, we have tons of, like, you know, stacks of photos, uh, just like mountains, heap piles of, like, slides, black and whites, photos, all a bunch of albums. And so we were clearing out this giant shelf. I don't know, like, how many albums we were just taking out from there. And I just found myself, I think this, this song was stuck in my head. I began humming uh, the Star Spangled Banner. Okay, no, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know how to sing it. I don't know the words, but I was humming it. And all of a sudden, my dad just stopped after I hummed a few notes. And, he's, and he stopped and he turned around and looked at me and said, why are you singing the American anthem? And I was like, oh, um, because I wanted to. And he's like, do you know how to sing China's anthem, not national anthem? What? I'm like, no, I don't know. I've never even remember hearing it in my entire life. And he actually literally got unhappy. Like, he looked at me and like, you don't know China's anthem, but you know USA anthem. Like, okay. This gives you a picture of, like, you know, my family and, and my dad. It was an interesting moment. I never forgot up to then. And uh, he proceeded to sing, you know, a few lines of, of it to me. And I said, well, you know, I'm not from China. I'm Malaysian, okay? Uh, yeah, you're, you're not Malaysian. You're Chinese. Okay. Details aside, well, let's do not go into that today, but uh, it was interesting because then he turned and he stared at me uh, with a very serious look in his eyes, and he says, don't ever forget where you come from. And he said that to me. I was like, okay, 
or all right. Uh, how many of you have moments like that with your parents? I don't know, maybe, maybe some. <laughs> I see one hand. And uh, I was recalling this story, and it's kind of like an interesting picture of how my dad saw his life and how, uh, you know, his place and who he was, his identity. And I'm reminded of Psalm 137. Uh, and uh, if you're familiar with this psalm, it's a very special psalm because it captures very strong sentiments of a people who are far from their homeland. Psalm 137, and this is not in the slides, but I'll read some of the lines here where it goes, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, celebration, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Obviously, you already read from these verses that they're not in the mood to sing, uh, to entertain their captors, right? Verse 4 then goes on, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And I was reminded of this even as I thought of how strong my dad's sentiments were. Uh, for where he came from, his homeland, and uh, it reminded me of this psalm. And I'm going to start off today, before we jump in and pray, is God's people, that's you and I, we live uh, in a time of exile. And this is a very major theme in biblical narrative, okay, being alive in a land that, you know, our forefathers don't call home. And from our study of 1 Peter, it has really further deepened my conviction, which was pre-existing, but even more so now, how significant this theme is for our lives and for our faith. In a world that is hostile, that is not our home, we can stay faithful to the Lord, our true Lord. We can live a life that fits who we really are while doing good until the end, if we here it is, not only accept the worldview uh, that we are exiles, but actually adopt, embrace this worldview, uh, you know, that we can stay faithful to the Lord, live a life befitting who we are while we do good until the end, even in a hostile world, because we are necessarily exiles in this world, wherever you and I are. It doesn't matter where in the world, what country, nationality, ethnicity. Wherever we are as believers of the Christian faith, we are necessarily exiles. And it is from this, in fact, it's from this whole story, grand narrative of God, that we should derive our vision for all of our life. From our redemption to our salvation and our sanctification, our vision for our entire way of life uh, is to come from this story. Right? And so as we come to close on our study on 1 Peter, today our topic is hope in God our perfecter. And my prayer for us, you know, is a renewed and awakened again deeper devotion to who God is. You know, that our hearts be captured again by God, for God, the God of our living hope, to whom we ascribe our allegiance and all dominion and glory forever. So with that, let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 10 to 14, short passage, the last few verses of this book aloud together. 1 Peter 5, 10 to 14. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, I don't hear, 
And after you have suffered a little while, everyone, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray. God, we give thanks that this morning we can come together and worship, whether here in person, uh, in our homes, in our different spaces. And God, we just pray that as we go into your word, that you would um, just stir our hearts to not just listen, but really hear you and hear your heart and your, de your desire for us, your intent uh, through this passage uh, and through all that I will be sharing. And God, that you would meet us right where we are and by your spirit uh, help us even to respond in faith and obedience uh, as that which delights you and brings glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now what we just read, these, these are the last few lines of Peter's letter, First Peter, and his final greetings. Notice how he's ending his letter, right? So at the start, we already say in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, it, it, it details who the recipients are, right? These are the elect exiles, the diaspora, right? These are people who were scattered in all the many different places. But at the end of First Peter, we see here in verse 12, Silvanus, right? Do you see that? Verse 12, Silvanus. And then the next verse 13, she who is in Babylon, and then Mark, his son, he calls him his son, and finally, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, some noteworthy things I'll just like quickly go through is, I'll point out, Silvanus is actually the formal name of Silas, right? You know, Paul and Silas. So, um, you know, if you like, who's, who in the world is this? You'll find him uh, through Acts 15 to 17. You'll see his name pop up also uh, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, he basically, it seems like he is like um, scribe for Peter, right? So Peter has been kind of dictating and uh, Silas has been writing. Interestingly, Peter says, you know, I write to you, it, I write to you briefly. He tells these uh, people that he's writing to. Uh, now, it may not feel very brief because we've been going through this for like about seven weeks now. You're like, oh, briefly, this is not a brief letter at all. But, uh, well, I think uh, the recipients would have felt it was quite brief, right? And at that point, I think it's unlikely Peter knew he was going to write Second Peter. He probably thought like this is kind of final, it's conclusive, and uh, so he's saying, okay, this is it, um, you know, this is the true grace, and firm in it, and that's why I write to you briefly, okay. Uh, the interesting thing is a curious use of the name Babylon that you see in verse 13. It's curious because um, historically, uh, there's no record of Peter being in a place of Babylon. Uh, and I think, and I agree with those, uh, uh, you know, scholars and all that who argue that the use of Babylon, the term here, is that it's symbolic, okay? 
Babylon as the archetype of uh, a power or an empire or kingdom that is ungodly, idolatrous, and corrupted, basically, right? So that's the use of the word Babylon here. Interestingly, in Psalm 137, where we read uh, the psalm just now by the rivers of Babylon, yada, yada, it says Babylon, right? In that context, of course, it's literal. But, you know, in First Peter, it's likely symbolic. What were these people experiencing is my question. What were their lives like? They were weeping. It tells us there was tension. There was, you know, uh, a, a sense of being mistreated, bullied, um, uncertainty, right? Fears. And in fact, Psalm 137, I'll just quickly read through it because I see that it's, it's quite significant. Verses 5 and 6, it says, oh, I didn't put it. Okay, Psalm 137, verse 5 and 6 says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And it goes on, If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem, you know, like, like basically like, uh, you know, don't let me forget my homeland, right? And as with their experience, I think we experience today too. You know, like a sense of, oh, those those old days, those good old days are over, or as an overwhelming fear that we, we lose our children to the surrounding culture, right? That is not where uh, we want them to uh, be influenced, overly influenced by. Or uh, there's a sense of God's work being overpowered um, by ungodliness. Or there's a fear that we lose heart in our sense of direction and purpose in our cultural climate. Or a fear that we forget our true identity, who we really are, right? our roots. We feel in many ways disempowered, marginalized, out of place, unable to really like fit in. And I think this is exactly what Peter meant to convey. He wanted to draw on this imagery because it's all through scripture. So ch uh, check out in, even in Old Testament, right, for Abraham and Israel, the way that God called Abraham out and, and he calls them into a new identity and he calls the people of Israel into a new way of life. As a people that belongs to God, Israel was chosen to be that redeemed minority that suffers tension and hostility, right, living under different rulership and yet called to bless the nations, even the very nations that were hostile to them. Now distinguish this from, uh, you know, this being called out kind of posture that, that God is, is calling to Israel with is different from a mentality that is separatist, okay? Like, you know, we're, we're separate from the rest of culture. Uh, they've got nothing to do with us and not us. And, and so that, that's different. Okay, and it's also to be distinguished from being totally subsumed into the host culture where they are at, right? To be called out to be those that God has chosen to be unique, uh, uh, to live compelling lives, as we've been talking about, to have uh, this kind of hope that provokes questions, that provokes people to be curious. That is what God was calling Israel to do, to bless the nations and that they are other nations may come and also worship him. And we see this in how God instructed his people through Jeremiah when they were taken into exile to Babylon. Same word. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons. 
and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I find it fascinating how this thread of being in exile is just all throughout scripture, right? Walter Brueggemann says, kind of a, a lengthy uh, quote, so I'm going to like chop some parts of it, but exile is the way to new life in new land. He's talking about the Old Testament patriarchs and the people of Israel. One can scarcely imagine a more radical understanding of history. In covenantal categories, embrace of curse is the route to blessing, to embrace this experience of being in exile. In New Testament categories, embrace of death is the way to life. Jeremiah is announcing the central scandal of the Bible, that discontinuity happens and is the source of real newness. So he, referring to Jeremiah, he holds what surely must have been a minority view, that the exiles are the real heirs. And conversely, those who cling to the land are the ultimate exiles. I didn't cut much, but so good. You know, it's just like, so the exiles are the real heirs. We are really the real heirs. So live like exiles. You see, from the Old Testament through New Testament, God's ongoing redemption plan, Peter wanted to convey this to the people who were reading his letter. Look, we have been called. We have received this living hope. God's choosing of Israel. And now we, uh, you all of us, who have this living hope, we are liberated to embrace death as the way of life. In an increasingly changing culture, in a post-truth world, you know, we are called to be people who are not in our real home to love neighbor, to submit, to be distinct, holy, to live hopeful lives, compelling lives. This is how we participate for redemption in the world, as with Israel. This is what people call the subversive fulfillment of the gospel of God's kingdom. And that is an amazing vision for us to live differently not by our own moral standards, not by any cultural values, but God's story and God's kingdom. When we read scripture through this lens, right, exile, I'll tell you, it gives us a way to narrate our past. It gives us, it helps us make sense of our present. And it helps form patterns of new imagination of what is to come. Prophetically, we can stay faithful as the church. We can live out our new identity, holding fast to the end because we know we are the real heirs of the eternal inheritance that God has promised you and I. And I find that stimulating to a degree that, like, God, you know, help me share this, you know, this Sunday. Now, I want to tell you Peter's vantage point as we zoom in on verse 10 now. Okay, for the rest of the time, what we're going to do is take a close look at verse 10 specifically. Now, when we started in chapter 1, Peter expounded on this living hope, right? He talked about an inheritance that cannot 
perish, yada yada. How this hope makes it possible for us to have a clear direction in life, right? At least what is most important, our living hope. Set your hope fully. It, it helps, it makes it possible for us to have contrast in our identity, right? Be different. It helps comfort us during trials and it helps bind us as a called community. Now, does that mean Peter meant that we would never experience confusion? Because clarity, right? Clarity in life, so never experience confusion. Does it mean that uh, having contrast in our identity means we never like entangled in sin, bondage? Never experience hardship, grief, suffering? Never experience isolation? Of course not. Peter understands it. He, he experienced them. You know, Jesus called Peter the rock and says, on this I will build the church, Matthew 16. But what happened? He said, I don't know Jesus, three times. And then when Jesus meets with him and Jesus restores him, reinstates him, then Jesus ascended again, left him again. I mean, like, he was disillusioned. He was in a place, hard place. And, you know, yet he writes chapter 5, verse 10. Can we read that verse again? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's precisely because of his deep experience of God's grace. He understood how deeply our hope needs to mature. He had hope. He had very sincere and zealous hope. But that hope must be perfected. It must be proven to be authentic. Think about Jesus' first words to Peter. What were they? Follow me. Matthew 4. John 21. Jesus' last words to Peter. Follow me. After feed my sheep, Jesus actually said, follow me. Between the first follow me and the second follow me. So much has happened. Was he called at the first follow me? Yes. Was he still called when Jesus reinstated him? Follow me. Pay attention that this verse is saying to you and I, God will call you? No. God has called you. Even in the midst of extreme failure or disillusionment, Peter understood he remained called. He had hope. Jesus still calls. He was still called. Don't forget that he was, before this verse, uh, talking about shepherding, right? We heard from Pastor Andre last week, uh, you know, the leader you hope for, shepherding God's sheep. And I bet he's very cognizant about that because of the conversation, feed my sheep. But he also knows he's straight as a sheep. And he knows he, as a shepherd, he needed to be humbled. I will never deny you. I don't know Jesus. Peter definitely had a vantage point. See him at his vantage point when he wrote this. After you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, not the God of my self-dependence, not the God of my merit, 
God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore nothing you do. All God. He will himself restore you. We got a good setup for victory in Jesus because Peter experienced it and he's telling us the same. The first part we're going to reflect on is this. God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. You know, when I looked through this passage, I found something which, you know, the geek in me enjoys that I thought is significant, okay? You will find in chapter 5 that the words glory and grace were used the same amount of times, more than twice. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Peter is writing to uh, them in verse 1, and then verse 4, this is all chapter 5, huh? verse 4, then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory, second mention of glory. First mention of grace, chapter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, chapter 5, verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, two times also, right? So twice glory, twice grace, but it is in verse 10, the third time for both words, you will find them appear together. In the same verse, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. Something significant besides this is that Peter started the letter saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you, the people he's writing to. And in his ending words, in verse 13, is he talks about standing firm in the true grace of God. And he tells them to stand firm in it. Throughout First Peter, I'm going to tell you he emphasized this grace at least 10 times. Chapter 1, verse 2, grace that can be prayed for for others, right? Grace to be multiplied. Uh, and then chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets prophesied about this same grace, right? That, that was to be belonged to the believers, the grace. The prophet, prophets prophesied about this grace. Chapter 1, verse 13, it is on this grace uh, that we are to set out hopefully. Same, grace. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Grace is that favor we receive and we find when we endure suffering, even in mistreatment, whether you submit to different kinds of authority, that grace uh, is to be given to you. Chapter 3, verse 7. Grace of life that can be inherited. Chapter 4, verse 10. Grace that is varied, many different kinds, that can be stewarded by us. God gives us grace, steward it. Peter says, chapter 5, verse 10, grace that is given to the humble, sorry, chapter 5, verse 5, grace that is given to the humble, and by, inf because that verse, it says, you know, humble yourselves in the Lord, right? Under the Lord's mighty hand. Chapter 5, verse 5, by inference, grace that is withheld from the prideful, right? You humble yourself, receive grace. By inference, prideful, no grace. Chapter 5, verse 10, it is attribute of God. God of all grace. Chapter 5, verse 12, grace that is true. Ten times in 1 Peter. When he wrote 2 Peter, it's there again. Start of 2 Peter, grace be multiplied to you. See this pattern that is so important to Peter. Chapter 3, verse 13 in 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my point. Many of us, we've been believers for so long, I think we have lost the wonder of this grace. And it's easy. we forgetful or we kind of, you know, whatever. We're just like numb. 
We may not say it or show it, but there comes or creeps in this self-sufficiency. We can go through the motions. But I want to venture to say that those of us who've been believers for a long time, we need God's grace more, not less. It may sound cliche, but you know the acronym G-R-A-C-E? Oh, <laughs> I thought, yeah. Yes, bing, A plus student. God's riches at Christ's expense makes the word grace. And it's really true. And the song we sing, "Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It makes a world of difference, not just to say I have grace from God, but to know God's character is all grace. It makes a difference, and Peter is trying to harp on it. He is the very one who has called us. This God is the God who has called you. Not just a God, the God of all grace. He is the one that has called you. And called not just in anything to whatever, you know, but called to be in Christ. There is a specific sphere in which that calling happens. God's saving work is through Christ on the cross. That is our internal, eternal, not internal, eternal inheritance. And Peter reminds us, let grace be multiplied in your lives. If, you are, if I'm calling you to set your hope fully on this grace, I'm going to pray that grace be multiplied in your life. And he does that in both letters. Be reminded that God's grace will come in its final full measure at the revelation of Christ. But now, grow in it. Grow in it. Pray for it. Don't squander it. Steward it. Desire it. Don't cheapen it. Receive it. When God gives, humble yourself and receive grace and stand firm in it. What about his eternal glory? We talked about grace. God wants us to have his grace multiplied in our lives with this end goal. From being living lives full of grace, which is great, we also reminded that we are living unto eternal glory, right? Our being filled with grace to live our lives well also includes a glory that is eternal, beyond this life. Jesus was one with manifest glory. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus prayed for it for us, with us in mind. John 17, 22 to 24. Read this. Let it sink in. Jesus talking to the Father. Father, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. He's talking about his disciples. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, that's you. I desire that you also, Jesus is saying, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. It matters to Jesus, not just to be one with manifest glory, but he's praying that we may see this glory that the Father has given him. 
And in Christ, we have this hope that is glorious and eternal, not just in this life. He who has called and summoned us, in fact, in some translations, is not called like, hey, can you come? Uh? It's not a like, polite invitation. It is a summon from the king, right? He who is God of all grace will supply all needed grace for you and I to walk out our calling into eternal glory until that day. Now, the second part of this verse 10 says, in some translations, the suffering a little while comes first. Uh, in the New King James Version, it comes after the God of grace part, right? But in essence, it's all there, okay? After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, Peter's letter is unmistakably in the whole New Testament, the one most filled with teaching on suffering. You can check it out. There's nowhere else that talks about it as much. But suffering, not just in broad stroke, suffering in the example of Jesus with a spiritual perspective. Let me tell you, just glossing over the several instances, it's not even all of it, okay? Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, although now for a while you have been grieved. Yeah, remember that verse, chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Right? Chapter 3, verse 14, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 2, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, to suffer for Jesus, so as to live for the will of God. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. But we still get surprised. Why is this happening? Right? But Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Then he goes on, verse 13, But rejoice. Don't be surprised. It's already very hard. But rejoice. Okay, let's do that. Jesus help. Verse chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator who is the shepherd of our souls, right? Resist the devil, chapter 5, verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by brothers and sisters everywhere. Recall last week, when Tim, two weeks ago, when Tim talked about the litmus test. Where do we go? What do we turn to in times of pain? You know, to like, you know, medicate our pain. Uh, and then we talked, and he talked about like, certain retail therapy that many of us suffer from. It's a syndrome. But Peter here is teaching, guys, here is this perspective. Look to the God of all grace. He knows the futility, and I'm talking about Peter. Peter knows the futile ways of facing hardship in his own strength. I will never. Let me wash your feet. He knows what it means to rely on himself. Remember how God has called you. Keep that in focus, the fact that you are in Christ. Look ahead to his eternal glory that awaits you. Do not lose hope, but humble yourself under his hand to be sustained through difficult times. He will supply all your needs according to his riches. To be honest, I must say, compared to very real forms of hardship, persecution, 
torture, being displaced, refugees, for example, right? Uh, that many groups or people are experiencing or have experienced. I feel a tinge of uneasiness talking about suffering, right? I, I was going to say, like, especially in this season, but, you know, many nations have been through persecution every year. It's not just this year. And what we have here, honestly, looks more like privilege rather than having our existence threatened, right? But, you know, I was just wrestling with this, like, oh, God, you know, let's not talk about suffering now, you know, like, yeah. Uh, but, well, <laughs> and yet, it's true that God then showed me, it is true that many of you fight battles that are no less easy, no less difficult. I'm sorry, it's opposite. It's different and doesn't make it trivial, doesn't make it petty. And all the same, if God would have us go through the battles that you and I have to fight, whether it looks like physical persecution, verbal abuse, or emotional intimidation, or stress, anxiety, and pressure from life, all of that, we all have these different battles. If God would have us go through them for our formation, they are not trivial. And so you and I don't need to measure suffering. Okay, actually, I'm not that bad. You know. Okay, be grateful. That's not the point. I think Peter, even at this time when he wrote this, it was not the most persecuted time for these exiles, actually. It was after that. After his letter was when the real strong persecution really happened. But I don't think he was like, oh, maybe then I write, you know? I mean, that's not the point. It's wherever we are, live with this vision that God has given us a hope and calls us to live differently. The key in this verse is a little while. That is the difference between a dash and all of eternity. None of us are exempt from hardship, right? But what our hope makes possible is to find purpose in our pain. Good and bad things, God forges our lives. So we do not lose heart. Second Corinthians says, chapter 4, Though our outer self is wasting away, for this light doesn't feel light, but this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. See the contrast there. Our afflictions, light. The glory, heavy weight of glory. That is beyond all comparison. Do not lose heart. When we are governed by this living hope church, our worldview is different. And I want to challenge you today to see this. Carry ourselves as sojourners, resident aliens. Sounds weird, maybe not, strangers. We are very clear this world is not our true home, but we are called to it. We are called to stay faithful to it, to live as our identity calls us to until the end. 
Peter repeatedly used the word here that sounds to uh, chapter 5, verse 10. These four verbs, and then we'll end soon. Himself, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. On your first reading, you're like, what's the difference? Same, same, right? Establish, strengthen, settle. They're kind of not very different. There's a lot of overlap. Uh, it's fascinating to see how the different Bible translations talk about it. You know, the, to, to throw in just a bunch of words to give you the richness of the intent, why Peter would bother to use four different verbs. And then the clincher is that he says, God himself. It can be longer, right? The point, though, is who is the perfecter? Who is the confirmer, if there's a word like that? Who is the strengthener, establisher, the equipper, the completer, the perfecter? Who is that? The one who restores, perfects, repairs us, mends us. That which is broken can be mended to be stronger than before because of God. Like Peter. To render constant our minds, to make stable. We are unstable, we wander, we are forgetful, ungrateful at times uh, to the God of our living hope. And yet he himself will make strong our souls. And this word, foundation, uh, says ground you as on a foundation. The last word. He will settle you himself. He will make stable for your soul. He will lay a foundation. The word like the man who built his house on a rock. God himself will found you. God himself will set you on a rock. That's what the psalm says. We don't need to be stable by our own strength. I cannot. None of us are resilient enough. Resilient discipleship by God's hand. Yes, we can. From verse 10, it's very clear who our perfecter is. God, who is the God of all grace. God, who has called you. God, who himself will perfect you. Can you hear Peter repeatedly saying these words, ringing in your ears? It is God. It is God's grace. It's not God who gives you grace. It is the God of grace. He himself will restore you, equip you, mend you, fix you, complete you, perfect you, establish you, found you. God himself, fix your hope fully on him, not on our problems, our circumstances, ourselves. And someone wrote this powerfully. The use of these verbs are not redundant. There is an orderly thought. There is this suggestion, the different aspects of his work. Basically, he will supply all you need. You need support, there you go. You need strength, there you go. You need a foundation, there you go. Everything you need. For the grace of God has appeared, Titus tells us, bringing salvation for our people. As we await for our blessed hope, God, who gave himself for us. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, on the cross, as he takes his last breath, it is finished. Alpha and Omega. This morning, I asked the Lord, what is your burden for us, even as we hear this word? And I'm going to call 
just a couple of you know groups of people who, if you that's you and you respond, don't delay. Respond to the Spirit immediately uh, as I ask the worship team to come up. Even as we've heard this morning, verse 10, let me say it to you one more time. That after we have suffered for just a little while, may the God of all grace, who has called you and I, into a glory that is weighty and eternal in Jesus Christ. It is he who will himself perfect you, strengthen you, establish you, and settle you. This morning, two persons from the Bible that God brought to mind was Daniel and Esther. And I asked God, why? Why? And I just felt like God saying that, you know, Esther, who was, who became queen, and her uncle slash cousin, I'm not sure which one, Mordecai comes and tells her that the Jews are in trouble. Would you do something? Because she's queen now. But she needed a reality check. So Mordecai said to her, Hey, you have been put in your position for such a time as this. And some of us, we are like Esther. We need a reality check this morning to remember. We are the exile. And somewhere along the way, you've forgotten that you are not meant to live for this world and God is saying to you this morning that hey you have been put in that place right where you are for a time such as this remember who you are remember and not just what you can do but who you are Esther you are a queen you're not just some Tom, Dick, and Harry, or Megan, uh, Kimberly, or something. You're not just that. But you are in this position. And you, some of you, need to hear this this morning, and you need to remember, to set your hope fully on God, not the things of this world. And if you are like Esther, you need reality check this morning. You say, God, yes. I recognize that I have an identity that I need to live up to. This is who I really am. And if that's you, wherever you are, just begin to tell God right now what's on your heart. And the second thing is, second person is Daniel. Daniel and his friends, and I ask God why. Daniel faced a lot of intimidation. And it was tempting for him to just back down and like, you know, diminish into the background. No need to stand out. No need to, you know, I mean, I don't know. What if God doesn't come through for me? And yet God has put a desire in you to confront the powers of darkness. And that's you. Some of you, you've kind of like shrunk back through the months 
through the years. Some of you, you're like, you're content to just say, I don't want to catch out so much, okay? Don't need to, I just you know, stay where I am. But Daniel did not. He faithfully pressed in, prayed, fasted, and interpreted dreams, whatnot. Whatever that came his way because of where he was at and the influence God gave him. And you need to remember that this morning, and that's you. And God is saying, you are like that, Daniel. You need to remember you are not just doing your job in your company or you know, you're not just a student in your school. You need to remember that I placed you there. Don't shrink back. And you have a desire, in fact, to be different, to stand up. And that's you. Then you respond to God. Don't shrink back, but ask God for courage to confront the powers of darkness, to contend for the kingdom, to be manifest right where you are, in your home, your neighborhood, your company, or companies, wherever, in your school, your campus. Ask God for courage and vision this morning.